Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of TechSpansive. I'm Sean Dubervac from Avrio Institute. And I'm Ross Rubin at Reticle Research. This week in tech, Facebook won a major victory where a, a judge here in Washington, D.C. dismissed two lawsuits arguing that the company was a uh, monopoly and had monopoly power over the social networking market. It might be a short-lived victory, depending upon how Congress uh, decides to, uh, to then move forward based upon the ruling. But the, uh, the judge ruled that the FTC's complaint says almost nothing concrete on the key question of how much power Facebook actually has. And uh, he wrote, quote, it is almost as if the agency expects the court to simply nod to the conventional wisdom that Facebook is a monopolist. First off, uh, the FTC, the, the court said that the FTC can come back uh, in another 30 days with, uh, I suppose, an amended suit. But the real issue here is uh, is one around definitions, you know, as, as you know, Sean, and this has been an issue brewing for several years about how for a lot of these antitrust um, uh, allegations around some of the biggest tech companies, the question is, how, how do you define that in part? Because uh, traditionally, it's been around uh, consumers uh, being subjected to higher prices, and particularly in a market like social media, where the providers generally provide the service for free, uh, that that's you know very difficult yardstick to apply. And then, even if you were to look at some notion of market share, it's it's also a difficult determination to make. I mean, what is the social networking market? Uh, does it include LinkedIn? Does it include? Twitter, um, you know, does it include uh, entrance from other other countries? You know, does it include WeChat? Uh, you know, so do, does it include um, uh, Snapchat? So, you know, particularly with, uh, and this is something we'll we'll certainly discuss later on the podcast, uh, very fluid uh, market uh, boundaries in terms of what these these categories are. Uh, certainly, in terms of uh, revenue. While Facebook has been, you know, one of the most successful internet companies in terms of uh, uh, driving advertising revenue on the internet, of course, it, you know, has a very formidable competition from Google, um, which would probably not be considered a social networking company by many, although, you know, they have certainly dabbled in that market over the years. Uh, and then, of course, Amazon uh, rapidly growing its its advertising business. So because of the fluid categories and because of the difficulty in applying traditional standards, that is what's making it a, a difficult case for the FTC. Of course, we saw Facebook's uh, stock surge in, in light of the, uh, the ruling, uh, but I think it's going to be an issue for many of these other companies that are, are attracting scrutiny. For example, you know, when Tim Cook testifies in Congress about at the App Store being a monopoly, he talks about other platforms. Of course, he talks about Android, you know, and he talks about the web uh, and other ways of uh, delivering services. Microsoft, of course, now uh, beefing up, you know, making another big run at, at, at an App Store and not being subtle at all. 
about contrasting its approach with Apple's. So, you know, thereby defining itself as a competitor. So, uh, so you know, to my certainly lay uh, perspective in terms of uh, antitrust law, it's, you know, to, to your point, Sean, it's certainly something that Congress needs to pass legislation uh, if they're going to, uh, to, to try to affect, um, you know, some, some, some changes here uh, under, the, uh, under the category of, uh, of antitrust. Now, uh, Sean, we were talking a little earlier, and you were talking about how maybe antitrust is, is not the right approach, uh, given that, you know, it, it, um, it, it tends to be somewhat of a, of a blunt instrument. Yeah, I think the, the great struggle is that it's not against the law to be a monopolist in America. You can be a monopolist. It's if you use that power, that monopoly power to hinder competition or to charge higher prices. So you you made the point, Ross, that uh, the social networks, by and large, are free to the end user. They're not free to advertisers. So do they you know do they do certain things that uh, in- inhibit businesses from reaching customers? Do they inhibit competition from from arising? Those are the questions that have to be answered because it's it's not against the law to be a monopolist. And I think that's the, the, the big hurdle that um, traditional antitrust r- regulation is, is and enforcement is going to have to face with all of these companies because they point to all the services they, they offer for free. You know, Google, Apple, all of these will say, look, we give you maps for free. We give you all of this, these other things. They're, it's a totally free. And so um, the uh, regulation is going to have to look at a, a different approach. And I think that's why it ultimately will come down to Congress deciding what type of environment do we want to foster in the U.S. I think the other big struggle, we've talked about it on the podcast in the past, is that digital markets gravitate towards concentration, uh, it, it's very natural that they scale up because of the network effects that are inherent to digital marketplaces. And so you naturally get digital markets that are highly concentrated. You almost have these natural monopolies that form in, in these digital marketplaces. And so it is a struggle for how we enforce these using these traditional measures. At the same time, you saw Amazon making moves to start to protect themselves as well. So while Facebook got this big win, uh, Amazon is seeking the recusal of FTC chair Lena Khan on any matters related to Amazon, citing her history of criticism uh, against Amazon. Of course, in 2017, she wrote a uh, what was an influential article at the time in the Yale Law Journal called Amazon's Antitrust Paradox. So Amazon uh, has come out and suggested that she should not be involved in anything related to Amazon. It's a good move, I think, for Amazon, because even if they don't win the request for recusal, they at least set up the argument that they are facing bias here, and, uh, and they'll be able to argue that they're being treated unfairly when anything comes up. And we saw things already come up this week. Senator Warren asked the FTC for a broad and meticulous review 
of Amazon's MGM acquisition. So inevitably, the FTC will be looking into that acquisition this month. And, uh, and so it, it's going to start very, very early. And Amazon, is, uh, Amazon knows it's coming and has taken an offensive measure here to, to try to help their narrative, at least in, in the public. Yeah, they should be careful. They might uh, send uh, James Bond out to uh, have some some mischievous uh, t- take care of a few problems uh, yeah, as, yeah, uh, good, as only he can, uh, or or perhaps she can. Uh, I believe that the next uh, James Bond film is supposed to have a uh, a female protagonist. So uh, oh, that's uh, that's pretty exciting. Um, yeah, it'll be great. Another point, uh, you know, we were looking at this article that uh, Matt uh, Rossoff wrote in. Um, in CNBC, uh, talking about the issue of uh, the ch- some of the challenges around uh, the, the definitions of, of monopolies, and he also points to uh, the spate of recent IPOs. A lot, lot happening in the public markets this uh, this uh, this week. Uh, he also talks about companies like Taboola uh, in, in the internet ad market. Um, which uh, is responsible for a lot of those uh, clickbait stories that uh, you tend to see at the end of, uh, of articles. And, uh, and, and also makes a point that I believe I've, I've made on the podcast in the past, which is that to at least some extent, these companies are checks uh, against each other, uh, with uh, a number of them playing in each other's core markets. Uh, I just wrote a, a piece, for example, today, uh, about the sustainability uh, efforts uh, that uh, Apple, Google, and Amazon are pursuing. And in the course of that, writing about some of their their business dynamics, just kind of looked at how Google, of course, started out in a, uh, a media company, is, is gearing up its, uh, its cloud uh, computing efforts. In fact, a story this week about how uh, Apple is now spending $300 million a year uh, with Google surpassing uh, Spotify and, and and a number of other big players, uh, and uh, and of course we you know uh, spoke for many weeks about the back and forth between Facebook uh, and Apple on this uh, this privacy uh, front, uh, and so uh, some interesting rumored news this week that uh, uh, Amazon is looking to potentially team up with Slack. And, uh, and Dropbox and some other companies to attack the, uh, you know, the, the old stalwart of, uh, of Microsoft's uh, business uh, productivity software. Uh, you know, we've all lived with Office for uh, many, many years. Uh, and uh, it, it's an interesting proposition because uh, a lot of the components are there, um, particularly uh, behind the scenes in Amazon Web Services. So, for example, uh, Amazon has, uh, you know, if, if you're an AWS customer, uh, one of the tools that uh, Amazon makes available to you is something called Chime, uh, which can be an effective uh, alternative to, to Teams or Zoom uh, video conferencing. Amazon also has something called WorkDocs, uh, which is basically... Uh, a, a suite of collaborative uh, productivity applications, uh, somewhat like Google Docs. And, and speaking of uh, Google space, I, I find it interesting that uh, these rumors are starting just as Google, maybe I shouldn't say just as, but coming after several months at least of Google 
really starting to crank up the focus on Google Workspace, you know, from, from just the branding of it. If, if you've happened to log into Gmail uh, recently, you've seen that that branding uh, is moving toward uh, Google Workspace. Uh, the company launching at Google at I/O something called uh, Smart Canvas, which adds even more of a modular uh, collaboration layer uh, over its core uh, core core suite offerings, and and um, you know now offering to make uh, a fair amount of uh, their functionality available to to everyone. You know, not just uh, workspace subscribers, but but a plan that's that's going to be free for everyone. So. So, uh, you know, for a long time, uh, at least a decade, Office was just impregnable. Uh, and, uh, and then Google over the years built up Docs and, and really made it, uh, you know, a credible alternative, uh, particularly in markets like, like education. So it's not surprising that uh, a group of, of other companies that have offerings wouldn't uh, would, would, would look at becoming, you know, yet a third uh, alternative here. And again, uh, I, I think a lot of the, the components are there. To your point about education, I see it with my kids. They are growing up with Google Classroom and the education system quickly adopted Google Classroom, moving away from, from Blackboard uh, by and large, which had a very strong hold of the education market. And as they moved to Google Classroom, they moved to Google applications like Google Doc. And so my kids have grown up in a Google Doc type environment using, you know, e email and other services and other business services. And, um, and so they, they head off to college using these type of tools. I think it's also an interesting time because we're at this inflection point where we're going back to the office, maybe. Some people are going back to the office. Some people are going back to the office part-time. So collaboration moving forward, I think, is going to need to be redefined. If we look at what happened 18 months ago when we all went into quarantine, Zoom shot to the top of our most used business suite of, of tools and business applications because it was how we were collaborating. And we saw you know, Slack get, get bought and Slack evolved as well. Uh, we, we saw news this week that Slack is introducing a new tool called Slack Huddles, which allows you to uh, leave video messages. It provides an enhanced employee directory, allows you to leave audio, have audio calls and, and other things. So it's adding uh, what I'll call multimedia into the, the Slack suite. If you think about where Slack was being used, it was about real-time communication and collaboration. But it was all text-based because you were working in a cube or you're working in an office. You didn't want to make a call. Now we're all working from home. It might be easier to leave a long message or to, to send it as an audio message. And obviously, as transcription gets better, then that will become a piece of that, uh, that suite as well. So I think you're seeing it not only at a time where Google has, to your point, Ross, really decided to focus on, on Google Workspace and build that out, but also a time where the definition of the office is in flux and the definition of real-time collaboration is in flux. And we're going to, at least for the next year, need tools that allow us to collaborate while we're in person, uh, but also 
pull in people that may not be there, may not be in person. And, and obviously, if you look at the um, commitment of these companies, Microsoft, Google, Facebook, uh, others, the large tech companies, they're all open to um, allowing remote workers to, to become a part of their culture and a permanent feature of their, their work style. Other companies, I think it's still up for debate. I think a lot of companies are going to go back to the office. You look at New York and the financial uh, center, they're, they're all coming back to the office. You know, I think there's going to be a lot less remote work in, in those markets. But I think all of these tools are speaking to the changing nature of work. And we're going to see more features like Slack huddles come in the, in the coming months and coming years as collaboration, real-time collaboration continues to evolve. There uh, are a couple of other pieces uh, driving this that uh, come to mind. First off, uh, first of all, on, on the Google Workspace um, promotion, I, I, sh- I should have mentioned the TV advertising that they're doing uh, for Workspace. When was the last time you saw a TV commercial for Microsoft Office? Uh, so, uh, so that's uh, something there. Although I'm, I'm sure you'll see many for Windows 11 as, uh, as that effort ramps up in the fall. Uh, the uh, you know when when Slack was an independent company, it kind of treated Microsoft with kid gloves, right? Slack was the market leader, and uh, Teams was the challenger, and you know they had the cutesy Apple-like you know welcome to the market seriously kind of ad, uh, and then Teams really started devouring market share. Now that Slack is owned by Salesforce. Uh, Salesforce, of course, has been a longtime uh, competitor, a far more aggressive competitor uh, with, uh, with Microsoft. Uh, and, uh, and it also, um, you know, my, Salesforce uh, a couple of years ago acquired uh, an app called uh, Quip, uh, which, uh, which is sort of like a Google Docs-y, like, uh, like web application that integrates spreadsheets and and some other stuff. So uh, that's certainly something that that could play a role uh, as well. And um, uh, so, you know, Salesforce has has a number of those, not only a number of those components uh, from a technical perspective, but uh, a a more adversarial traditional market uh, position uh, with with Microsoft. Uh, And then I also think it's just kind of interesting to kind of see how the dominoes have somewhat fallen here, uh, where where Google moved, you know, after making many enhancements to Google Meet and sort of finally getting its chat and video chat applications resolved, at least in the corporate space, after many many years of uh, of musical chairs uh, on those apps, uh, made you know really tightly integrated Meet uh, into. Uh, Google Workspace into Gmail, uh, and uh, I wouldn't be surprised to see even tighter integration into Chrome uh, as as we move forward. That would make a lot of sense for them. And then, of course, when you know, the, the I think the big uh, other shoe dropping was, of course, Microsoft integrating Teams uh, right into Windows, right into that taskbar. So I think if if you were a Teams competitor. Uh, you recognize that uh, you know now. Now you have to really step up your game. Yeah, exactly to your point, Ross. With Teams being integrated into Windows 11, I think the other players are are going to look at how do we gain real estate advantage 
integrating some of the Google tools into Chrome makes a lot of sense. And, and I really do think that uh, gives them advantage, though it does, going back to our antitrust conversation, remind me of when I worked for the Department of Justice during the, the heyday of the Microsoft uh, trials and the heat they took for you know embedding browsers into their their offerings and so we go back to how much can you do with that browser now the browser wars are, are much more open and competitive today than they were at that time but we moved to an environment where all of these companies are seeking to have prime placement and and be easily accessible and that means taking advantage of all the real estate that they have control over and that then starts to to uh, drive some antitrust scrutiny of are they using their market power and how much market power do they have to their advantage now what will be much easier in those type of cases is you can look at market share and you can figure out how much market share they have in you know in browsers or in operating systems and then are they misusing that that market power are they excluding competitors from that market power do you think microsoft would be willing to let slack have the same placement in windows yeah i don't think they would do it willingly but maybe well i i mean that they're, they're certainly uh com communicating that that willingness uh you know if nothing else windows 11 the windows 11 announcement uh went to great lengths to talk about how Microsoft values openness and, and is, you know, they wanted it to be a, you know, supportive environment for developers. And of course that, you know, it's very tough to uh, credibly say that, you know, without embracing at least some of your competitors. Right. And, and the teams thing on the taskbar, I mean, I don't, I don't know if you can remove it, uh, but it's just a taskbar. You know, so you can like the Apple's dock, you know, you can put whatever you want there. You can put Google chat there, you can put Slack there. Uh, but uh, but there have already been some interesting, uh, I, I did see one comment about how certain functionality in Windows 11 will default to Edge, uh, for example, even if you have defined Chrome as your uh, default browser. <laughs> uh, so, uh, you know, it, it, it's less about, providing access, I think, versus removing friction. Um, and, and, you know, just like with the browsers, right? You were always able to install another browser, uh, but the question was, you know, what, was, what came on the machine? And, uh, you know, Microsoft with Edge, uh, it's been very interesting to see that trajectory because they have just done a phenomenal job with that browser ever since they switched to the, uh, the Chromium rendering engine and, and source uh, material, I have not found a single thing uh, that you can do uh, in Chrome that you can't also do in Edge. Everything works. Extensions work uh, for the most part on a PC now. I, I don't really see a, a reason to install Chrome uh, if it comes with Edge. You know, it's just, uh, it works and it's fine and it's fast. So, you know, there's, uh, there's that. Uh, our, our last story um, also talks about the idea of blurring category boundaries as we circle back to the world of Facebook uh, and a couple of 
a couple of moves from Instagram uh, and its competitors. Uh, Instagram now claiming that it is no longer a photo sharing app. Uh, and that also kind of links back to our last story because Instagram in many ways became, was one of the first companies to serve as the heir apparent to these instant messaging apps, which were once the, the engines of, uh, of communication. And of course, uh, you know, over the years, uh, Facebook has morphed it to take on the functions of other, other products. Uh, and now they are looking for it to become far more uh, of a video focused uh, offering to take on the popularity of TikTok. Uh, and uh, considering YouTube more of a competitor. Meanwhile, TikTok uh, also looking to support uh, longer videos. Uh, and in a move that looks at uh, uh, business model diversification as opposed to media support diversification uh, is going to allow uh, some of their customers to uh, are going to allow their, uh, their content creators to to designate certain videos as, uh, as exclusive videos in, in a subscriber business model, uh, taking a page from uh, Substack uh, newsletter business model where you can have a, a, a freemium uh, offering. So interesting move, I, I think, particularly by uh, Facebook with Instagram, uh, which they have really treated like a chameleon uh, pointing it toward competitive features. They clearly had huge success doing that with Snap uh, and, uh, and the stories feature uh, where the outcome was many people said Instagram implemented uh, uh, stories much better than, than Snapchat did. Uh, but my open question is, where does it end? I mean, can Facebook just uh, point this cannon at, at anything? You know, it's, it's like one of those... Um, uh, fantasy, like Marvel-like weapons where, you know, you shoot the ray gun at something and all of a sudden you take on the powers of, of that, you know, of that superhero or, or something like that. So now they want to turn it into TikTok, you know, they want to turn it into YouTube. Um, do, does it ever end? Or can they, you know, is, is Instagram's feature set infinitely malleable? I think it is. And I think it goes back to my comment about these digital networks moving and gravitating towards high concentration. And so what ends up happening is you have to gravitate towards the most popular features or you risk losing the entire market. And we, we saw it in the last few months with audio and, you know, Twitter saw that Clubhouse was gaining traction quickly. That's a great and, point. And so it immediately introduced a new feature. And I, I personally found myself moving less towards Clubhouse, but because I was already on Twitter, I right. would tune in on occasion. Um, we saw the same thing with stories on Twitter, essentially. They said, okay, this feature is gaining momentum in Instagram, which they had arguably taken from, you know, from Snap. And so uh, they integrated that feature as well. Twitter's another great example of a company that seems to constantly be trying out new features and, and seeing how the audience responds but it's in response to the competitive threats of other platforms because they have the ability, if a feature really catches on, to drive the whole market there. I, I think TikTok's move to expand the length of videos to three minutes is really interesting. And you 
have to wonder where does that end? Could that become five minutes? Could that become 20 minutes? Could that become the next YouTube? Essentially, if they were to just lift those limitations, then TikTok starts to look a lot like YouTube with a, a, a social feature where you're following and, and certain YouTube is, is also looking to add a, a TikTok-like feed, e- right? Exactly. And, and yeah. Shorts, right? yeah, exactly. And I think, <laughs> I think if you're YouTube, you have to be thinking about this because you see where the next generation is spending the bulk of their video consumption time. And it is in places like TikTok. They're doing a lot of, uh, of viewing there. And so as that video starts to expand, does it gain more and more of their attention and time and move it away from, you know, from YouTube channels? So TikTok today is still, I think, a far way from having 20 minute videos, but with a flip of switch, they could, and that would bring a lot of influencers who currently exist on, on YouTube to TikTok when they're making, you know, 20, 30 minute videos on a regular uh, regular cadence. Now, the big question is, can TikTok create an environment that will allow those influencers to monetize their content better than YouTube? And uh, I think that that will be the next hurdle for TikTok to figure out is how do we let these individuals do 20-minute videos and let them keep a bigger share of, of the revenue? It's It's actually, I think, a smart way to go about it because this way... You don't have to sacrifice any of your advertising revenue if you're TikTok, uh, and you're just kind of expanding. You know, you're making the pie bigger. Essentially, you're you're opening up a new revenue stream for the company, uh, but also uh, providing a no risk really to to you as TikTok, no risk way for uh, for content creators uh, to make money, and and also. Uh, an alternative model to YouTube, uh, where they they haven't really been able to do those kinds of premium offerings in service. You know, there there are a lot of ways that you can monetize on uh, as as a YouTube uh, influencer, uh, but uh, but a lot of you know things like merchandise sales and things like that. But but not a lot of them have been. Uh, active uh, in, inside the platform. Now, I, I think you've, you've got me uh, convinced more on the uh, the Instagram uh, argument that uh, that they can pull this off. Um, you know, we we mentioned the, uh, uh, the the stories feature, and it's not just that Instagram uh, implemented well and and implemented the feature in a, in a more simple, understandable way. But they also implemented it in a way that spoke to their user base. Um, so, in addition to your point, Sean, about uh, inertia, <laughs> you know, there's also really understanding your user base and and how they they think about things and uh, presenting uh, competitive features uh, that way. Uh, but on TikTok, you know, I, I there's two things there. One. Even though the company has, you know, even though the service has seen huge growth over the past few years, it's really not quite the level of an incumbent service, I think, uh, of uh, that, that Instagram is. And so I think they need to be a little more careful uh, in, in terms of uh, expanding the, the length. You know, as you noted, they're, they're not going to 20-minute videos yet, but, but imagine if Twitter, you know, lifted the, the text limitation from 256 characters to 
5,000 words, uh, you know, would be a, a very different uh, service. So basically it would become WordPress, you know, or, or yeah, blog yeah, or medium. something like that. Yeah, yeah medium, yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, Twitter doesn't want that. Um, so uh, so anyway, uh, there's, uh, uh, I, I, I guess the upshot is that there is uh, a lot of flexibility, um, although not infinite flexibility. Yeah, and well, and actually, though, you look at what Twitter is doing, and they bought a newsletter service. They, That's true. They're building out some of these other things. So I think they so you do, have to diversify it a little bit. Yeah, I well, I think they yeah. do want to offer those services. They're just going to offer them through different channels. And that's right. really, if you think about what stories is, is a different channel on the same platform. And so Instagram's move here where they're letting tools, they're building tools for creators to share exclusive content through stories to their paying fans, I think is a brilliant move because it allows users to stay in the stories environment, which they, which they understand, they know, to your point, it was simple, they love it. And it also allows the influencers ability to monetize their content while not having to manage a separate platform. And I think that's a key thing. You want all these influencers on your platform but you don't want them to have to manage it as if it's a separate platform where they're having to produce content for their paid customers right. and content for their free customers. And so if you can create it so that it's really easy to manage, then you're going to keep them on the platform and keep them from moving elsewhere. And if you keep them there, what we know about these platforms is you're going to then also keep the users there. So I think those are, are, are two pieces of the same pie. You got to keep the content on the platform and you got to keep the users consuming that content. And I, I also think another really interesting thing is happening here. If you look at what social media was, it was all about creating a platform that was both a communications platform as well as a broadcast platform. Mm -hmm. And th there's always kind of a very fine line. Sometimes you can't tell if people are having conversations on Twitter or people are just broadcasting information. Facebook is the same way, even though maybe the, the circle of influence is smaller. Sometimes people are communicating with their friends and sometimes they're broadcasting to their friends what they want them to see, their fancy vacations or, you know, their wonderful headshots or whatever it is. And, you know, and so, uh, we're seeing the social networks increasingly bifurcate these markets where uh, Facebook groups, I think is a great example where you can still interact, but it's a more defined audience around a specific topic of, of interest or a hobby. To me, what Instagram is doing with stories is allowing some of that bifurcation to take place where it's broadcasting to your paid customers or communicating to your friends. And, you know, you start to see lots of, of gradients there in how the service can be used. Well, I, I would just say that, you know, there's, there's just a difference between functionality and mindset. And, you know, you, you make a really great point about the dynamics around adding functionality to these platforms. Maybe going back to the 20-minute videos, the, uh, the um, uh, you know, the TikTok launches TikTube, you know, and, and the 20-minute videos are on another part of the app, you know, if you, if you want to go watch that, much as Twitter has done with Spaces. Uh, but as I think... Uh, you know, customers or, or advertisers think about platforms. Uh, they need to, you know, there's still companies that are seen as the, as the flag bearers, even, even though Facebook may have huge video viewership, 
you know, through, through watch, they just don't have the mindset there. Uh, and, uh, and, you know, even though much non-gaming streaming may be happening on Twitch, you know, they, they don't have the mindset there. So, uh, so I think, yes, anyone can add a feature almost instantly. Uh, you may even be able to slow down the momentum of a competitor, but I think ultimately the win for these companies is can, can they monetize that as an advertising asset? Uh, and, and that's probably a more, a more difficult longer term uh, road to hope. Yep. And I think it comes back to where we started the podcast today around antitrust is it, it comes down to advertisers and where they fit in and uh, how, how much influence they're able to have with that audience. Probably a great place to end this week's episode of Textmansive. Thanks for joining us. Again, I'm Sean Dubrovac. You can find me on Twitter at Sean Dubrovac. And I'm Ross Rubin. You can find me on Twitter at Ross Rubin. Thanks for listening.